So the first step to coming back home to the like physical organisms that we live in is to acknowledge, wow, I was never really taught how to honor my own physiology. Since leaving my job, many of you have reached out and said you wish you could make a big change too, but you feel stuck. Stuck or getting unstuck, it's been a theme for me for many years. And I came across Britt Frank's new book, The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward. And Britt is an adjunct professor at the University of Kansas. She's an author, a speaker, licensed psychotherapist, and social worker, and Duke graduate. But her path isn't as shiny as her resume. And when I read this book, it felt like she was talking directly to me with concepts that made so much sense. It slapped me right in the face. She busted so many popular myths that we believe as a culture and laid out really powerful tools to help get us unstuck. So if you want to order the book, the link is in my show notes, and you can learn more by going to allisonhair.com. And I have to ask, do you know some folks who have told you they're frustrated with their place in life and they want more, they feel stuck? I encourage you to text this episode to them right this minute. In the meantime, you might as well listen to this episode as Britt Frank has joined me and we had a really insightful discussion about the science of stuck. Here is my chat with Britt Frank. By the way, the science of stuck, oh my goodness, even just talking in my own circles, people are like, oh, I need to hear that. You know, I need to hear that interview. You know, you're a professor, you're an author, you're a speaker, you're a licensed psychotherapist, you're a Duke graduate. You know, looking at that, looking at your resume from the outside, it seems really shiny. But your history was not always that way. Can you share a little bit of your path? Super sorted. And I have my imposter parts that wants to clarify. I'm not a professor. I'm an adjunct professor. I mean, adjunct professor. Okay. I have a PhD. So I have a part going, make sure you clarify. So yes, I have a very shiny forward facing resume, but the sort of sorted, gritty, dirty, mucky underside is despite all appearances, I was a drug addict. I was a relationship addict. I had severe, severe, what would be called personality disorder type behaviors. I mean, mm. hot mess, just like a hot mess of a human. I had no idea how to be a, a human, how to be a woman, how to be in a physical body. So I made some really bad choices and I caused a lot of chaos. And then eventually I had enough and I burned my life to the grounds and walked out of the ashes, took a shower and started over. And here we are. How the hell are you able to do that so easily? <laughs> you know, like just <laughs> to encapsulate the hot mess <laughs> so, so succinctly. I can explain it easily, but the, the journey was not, I mean, I wouldn't change anything, yeah. but I would not want to repeat one second of that path. Like, yay, I'm glad I took it. And oh my gosh, I don't want to do it again. Not like It that. sounds kind of fun at some point to just burn it down to the ground, you know, and kind of, uh, uh, kind of, kind of throw caution to the wind. You know, I think what's interesting about that path and we, we don't have to go down this, but you know, there are people like me that that have always been kind of on a straight and narrow when it comes to those things that I fantasize about what would it be like to just do everything, you know, so you you have a different perspective of it. And I, I would be curious to ask, you know, how would you describe 
stuck? And did you identify yourself as stuck in that thing? Or did you have no choice except to burn it to the ground and take a shower and take another step out? So first disclaimer, because if anyone's like freaked out by this conversation, you don't have to burn your life to the ground in every case. Like not everyone had had descended into the depravity that I was like, I didn't have any reasonable choices. There was nothing of value yeah. left standing in my life. If I took an honest inventory, is this bringing worth and value? Is this bringing me closer to who I want to be or further away? At the end of the day, it all had to go, but not everyone needs to do that. I wouldn't have even defined myself as feeling stuck. Stuck is actually an incredibly optimistic word because if you feel stuck to some degree, you know that there's a path forward and that mm. if you're stuck, that means there must be a way to get moving. I wouldn't have even said I was stuck. I would have said, this is who I am. I am crazy. I am unmotivated. I have no chance of having a successful relationship with sex, with food, with money, with myself, whatever. And this is just the way it's got to be. So number one, stuck is an incredibly optimistic word. If you think you're mm. stuck, that means you know there's another path. There is another option besides where you're at. And I define stuck as having the resources, the safety, the access, Everything in your environment logically would say that you can do a thing, but for whatever reason, you're not doing it. So having mm. no reason not to, because I mean, if you're in a war-torn country or if you are under systemic oppression, that's not stuck. That is, you are in a hostile, unsafe environment. But assuming that you're safe and you have access to resources and what you need and you're not doing what you want to be doing, that's what I call stuck. So I love that definition. What I also hear about when you're talking about, I want to do something, I can't get off the couch for whatever reason, there seems to be a lot of inherent shame. And I get the sense, you know, reading your book, and by the way, you have to get this book, The Science of Stuck. It is almost like your best friend is like, bitch, here is the skinny. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's all, it's very like, it's got the best friend vibe of just, here's what I've learned. Here's, you know, let me just give it to you straight. But also you seem to be a word nerd in that you, you know, you are very, very intentional about your words and that words in pop culture are, are misused a lot. So I'm wondering about the inherent shame that comes with, you know, when you tell yourself, well, I want to quit my job. I want to get off the couch. I'd like to start painting. I wish I could go to the gym, but I'm just going to be a lazy ass. You know what I mean? And there, there's like a, an insult that you give yourself to try and motivate yourself to get off the couch. Is that crazy that we think people aren't crazy, but the things that we were taught were that if I somehow beat myself up, I'll find my way to a happy, healthy, functional life. Like those two things cannot coexist. You cannot be like covered in shame and full of the energy and excitement and passion to achieve the goals that you want to achieve. And so I, I like in the book and just in my work talking straight, because I, I love the deep dive and the academic side of things, but no one has time for that shit. If you're feeling stuck and you want to get going, you do not care which of your cranial nerves is doing what. It's like, what do I need to know? Bottom line this for me. But I'm also a word nerd because if we do not use accurate language, to describe what is happening, nothing's going to change. And so if I'm saying I'm such a lazy ass and I'm so unmotivated, what's wrong with me? Now I'm feeling shamed and nothing will make someone feel more stuck 
than feeling shamed. Plus, mm. it's not accurate. If you're stuck on the couch, there's a reason. Now, a lot of people get mad at me when I say that. Like, are, are you excusing people who just lay around? No, I love this. I love this because I think it goes into motivation, lazy, crazy. I think there are a couple of words that that you take, a, you redefine in a really powerful way, an empowering way. That is not an excuse, but it is, it's almost like a compassion for yourself in a way that's far more empowering than trying to berate yourself into, you know, submission. It does. And think about your car. So if you are sitting in your car and it's out of gas and I say to you, hey, um, your car is out of gas. Here's the gas tank. That's a gas station. Go there and put that thing in this thing and you're going to be able to go. And you say to me, no, it's me. The problem is just me. I just suck as a human and I suck and this car sucks and everything sucks. I'm like, no, you're just out of gas. You're just making excuses for me. I'm like, no, I'm explaining the nature of the problem. If you're out of gas, you need gas to go. If you're stuck with procrastination or feeling quote unmotivated, you have a, a quote gas tank in your brain that's empty. And if you don't know that, of course, you're going to think I'm lazy. I'm crazy. It's just me, but it's not. And we're not taught accurate information about our own brains and our own bodies, even therapists. This was so horrifying to me that you can become fully operational and licensed and never once hear the terms nervous system, amygdala hijack, fight, flight, freeze, or all of these mechanics that happen. You know, mental health is not just what's in your mind. It's physiological. And if you don't know that there are some Can basic you, body things, you're going to get stuck and you're going to stay there. Yeah, that needs, I think that bears repeating that mental health is not, it's, it's physiological first. Right. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean eat healthy and take a bath and yeah. go out in the sun. When I say mental health is a physical process, it means if your brain is perceiving threat, it's going to do things that are completely outside your control. You don't get to decide whether or not your brain goes into fight, flight, or freeze. Now, that's we can work with it. You know, if your brain is stuck, there are things you can do. But we forget that we have these automatic processes like digestion and respiration and a lot of the systems in our bodies do what they do, no matter how many affirmations we chant, no matter how much positive thinking we throw out there. And if you don't know that there are automatic physiological things that contribute to your mental health, you're going to think, well, I just need to think my way forward. And we can't do that mm. because it's not a thinking problem first. It's a body problem first. Can I talk about how disconnected a lot of us are from our bodies and we don't know it? And that might look like, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, when you're a kid and, you know, mom says, Honey, go kiss Uncle Jim. And you you say, I don't want to kiss Uncle Jim. He's got a beard and it, it hurts, you know, like my face when he kisses me. I don't want to. Go kiss him. You don't. It starts to disconnect your own intuition, your own body. And I think as I'm, it's something I'm thinking about a lot in my own life is reconnecting to your body, you know, and how disconnected we can be for a lot of reasons, whether they're cultural, whether they're intentional or not. How do you reconnect? Well, first, I just, the thing about making kids kiss people, and if you're a parent and you've done this, no shame, you know, like all parents were taught, kiss grandma, like tell your kids to kiss yeah. grandma. It's not nice if you don't kiss grandma, you're going to make grandma sad. But once mm -hmm. we know more, we can do differently. And when you teach kids that their job is to use their bodies to please another adult's, 
that is a really, really bad message to send. And, you know, parents are like, what are you talking about? It's just being polite. No, it's not. You're teaching a child that they have no choice over what happens to their body and that their bodies need to be in service of the pleasure of a grown person. If you grow up with that message, of course, you're going to end up in unsafe situations with unsafe people. And little kids are very intuitive. I don't want to kiss uncle whoever. That little kid, his or her or their intuition is telling them something. And we train children out of their intuition and then wonder why as adults, we don't feel at home in these physical things called bodies. So the first step to coming back home to the like physical organisms that we live in is to acknowledge, wow, I was never really taught how to honor my own physiology. I was never taught how to honor my body. And that's a bummer. But most people, it's like, oh, well, I have enough food to eat and I have privilege. So I have no right to be upset about anything. It's like, Mm -hmm. don't disqualify yourself just because you have it good. Perspective is great. Recognizing privilege is important. And if you have no sense of home in your body, that's because no one gave that to you. And that's sad. So let's Make it okay to be sad about that. And then we can start building and retraining ourselves to recognize, you know, my favorite question is this. When was the last time you felt safe in your body? If you ask that to almost any grown Hmm. adult person, you're going to get a blank stare. Like, huh? What do you mean? Yeah, I'm blankly staring at you. Right? (laughs) I didn't know this either until I got into therapy as a client. We're not taught how to recognize physiological feelings of safety. We know what the bad stuff feels like. I know what anxious feels like. I know what depressed feels like. Mm -hmm. But if I don't know how I feel, how do I experience safety in my body? Nothing I do is going to work. And that's not our fault. So we need to train ourselves in the language of what feels safe, what feels comfortable, what feels warm, what feels like home, who feels like home, and get fluent in that language or we're going to stay kind of where we are. Mm. I think it's an interesting perspective. And one thing that is uh, apparent in your book all throughout is the need for self-awareness. And I also think this is something where we're all disconnected. You know, it's hard to, you know, I, I always say, you know, everyone thinks they have a good sense of humor, but not everybody is very funny. And so I wonder about... <laughs> You know, like, how do we know if we're self-aware? Because, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. It's just a hard question. I love that so much. Everyone thinks they have a good sense of humor and that they can sing. And it's like, no, really, that's not your, <laughs> that's not your gift in the world. You have other gifts. So I would say if you think you're self-aware, like, cool, how's your life working? How do you feel about food and sex and relationships? How do you feel about your goals? If you're nailing it and you're hitting it on every single like checkbox, then okay, great. Like my book's not for you. Go read something else. But if you think you're self-aware, nevertheless, we have these things. It doesn't mean that you're not self-aware. It just means that there is an entire area that for whatever reason is not accessible to you. And we are all masters in the art of self-deception. We are very skilled Mm -hmm. at not knowing what we know, at pretending we don't think what we think and acting like we don't want what we want. Sometimes procrastination is because we're out of sync with what we want. Like, why can't I get out of bed? Because you hate your job and you hate your life and your body is trying to tell you that. No, I'm grateful. I have a job. I'm grateful. Everything. I have no right Mm. to be mad. So our bodies are on our side and all of our symptoms 
our, our body's best efforts to bring us into Martha Beck, who I love. She just wrote a book about, in, you know, integrity with what we think, who we are, what we want and not lying to ourselves about ourselves. When people say they have a motivation issue, a lot of the times it's not a motivation problem. It's, well, what do you actually want? And if you don't really know what you want and you feel pulled in a lot of directions, you're going to feel stuck. And that makes sense. So how do you figure out what you want? (laughs) So I love that question so much. That's like my next book I'm going to write about how (laughs) to work with self-deception. So how to what you want. Let's start with, can you acknowledge that we're all full of shit in some capacity, in some area? Yes. Because if we can't start there, we're, we're not going anywhere. I love this though, because I think that people, we all assume that we are good people. You know, every once in a while we might be an asshole. You know, we, we kind of feel bad about it, but we all assume that we are good people. And you have a very interesting perspective on this. Can you share? Yes. Yes, I can. So when I'm talking about goodness, I'm not talking about behavior. There are behaviors that are inherently good and bad and right and wrong. I'm talking about inside of us. We are all so concerned with our goodness that we completely ignore our wholeness. You cannot have a happy, genuine, fulfilling, authentic, expansive, abundant life without wholeness. But wholeness requires us to look at the shiny goodness of ourselves and the icky, dirty, mucky, griminess about ourselves. If you're a human, you have a full set of traits and characteristics. Like if I held up a microphone to everyone's mind so we could all hear what everyone was thinking, it would be like, holy shit, we all have icky parts of our personalities that we don't want to acknowledge. But Carl Jung said anything that we don't acknowledge will show up in our lives and we'll call it fate. And yeah. so mm. developing the the willingness and the courage to go inside and acknowledge that's again, it doesn't mean all behavior is acceptable, but all parts of us need to be welcomed. Otherwise they're going to come out sideways in the form of symptoms or suboptimal behaviors or whatever. Um, so will you get honest with yourself about your yourself is like paramount. I love that it is non-binary, you know, like versus the good versus bad, but whole. But I wonder, you have a whole section on shadow intelligence. What is shadow intelligence? Because that sounds like it is like some of the dark parts of yourself. So shadow intel, you know, we heard of, uh, we've all heard of social intelligence and emotional Mm. intelligence, which is great. And, you know, having fluency and how we feel and what we feel and having language to describe feelings, that's fantastic. And we have this completely ignored part of our psyche, the gross parts, the parts that think really bad thoughts, the parts that have horrifying impulses. We may not act on them, but those thoughts that sort of come across our mind. It's like, oh my God, surely that wasn't me who just thought that. It's like, yeah. yes, that was you who just thought that. And I think <laughs> it's you. And we all have really, really weird, icky stuff. Shadow intelligence is the degree to which you are connected with those parts of you and which, again, you don't subscribe to the behaviors, but you you get to know where do these parts come from? Why do I have a part that every time this happens, this is my first impulse? And can you get to know them and befriend all aspects of your inner world? So, you know, with emotional intelligence and social intelligence, you can achieve success, but you can be successful and miserable without shadow intelligence. If you're not willing to acknowledge your wholeness and you focus only on your goodness, you're going to feel crappy and then you're not going to know why. Then you'll end up in my office going, I have everything. What is my problem? 
Well, your problem is there's a whole sub society of parts of yourself that we've never allowed the light of day. So let's so hit the mic. Can we do can we do something in real time? So I'm thinking about a shadow thought that I've had that I'm not I'm embarrassed. <laughs> you know, but let's say I'm scrolling on Instagram and I see somebody whose life is curated, it's perfect, and I'm like, can't this woman just get fucking fat? You know, how do I befriend that part? You know what I mean? Like there are things that we say that I would never say out loud except for now <laughs> in in the presence of a therapist. But how would I how would I befriend that part? But you know, you instead say, of the judgment, you know what I mean? I love that you just like shared that because of course you think that and I've thought that and we've all thought that, but no one will say that. So thank you for saying that. So, okay, great. Hello, part of you who wants this woman to get fat. It sounds like she's doing something that you really want. Tell me about yourself. What is it that you really want? Because envy always points, it's not a good way, but it does point towards desire. So mm. help me understand more what it is you're wanting. Maybe we can find a better way for you to get it than for her to not have it. You know, there's enough out there yes. for everyone to, it's not pie. It's not like if she has a slice, that's less pie for you. You know, the more we give, the more we have to give and it's expansive. We know this. So I would say to that part of you, hey, welcome. Thank you for sharing that. Sounds like you have something you really want. Tell me more. I want to know that. That's a really good reframe. And one thing in your book uh, that I wrote down is comparison distorts truth. So good, right? Because how often do we compare? Uh, you know, she yes. has everything. And then we go into a spin and we forget who we are, what our own gifts are. And Is I, that I, the graveyard spiral? <laughs> that's the addiction chapter. That's oh, okay. Like airplanes start spinning and the pilots don't know uh -huh. that they're spinning. And so if we don't know that we're triggered, we're going to do things that are not good and not know why. So that's, right. that's the addiction spiral. Okay, sorry. I'm huh? getting all crazy. Okay, so comparison distorts truth. Yeah, there's all kinds of spirals. So <laughs> comparison is a binary, going back to this one or the other black and white, right? Comparison is she has it, therefore I don't have it. She's good, therefore I am bad. And that is just not how this world mm. operates. There is enough work. There is enough creative stuff. There are enough projects for, again, assuming that you have access and relative safety and choices. If you don't, that's a whole nother conversation. But assuming that you do, comparing yourself takes you out of the reality that just because she's doing it doesn't mean you can't. You know, like when I sat down to write, I got so discouraged. I'm like every book has freaking been written. Like there is no book that hasn't been written. Why mm. am I even trying to put another one out into the world? And it's like, there's room. But if I immediately compare myself to other authors, which of course I did, then I'm going to get in this binary, if them, then not me. Versus the truth is, if them, why not me? If they can do it, why can't I? You know, why can't you? Why can't any of us? I'm wondering about your journey to writing a book. What got you over that hump of saying, you know, wh where is my, you know, I, I think we talked about this before we started recording that the listeners of this show, Culture Changers, are you know, we're asking the question or we are answering the question, where is your place in the story of changing the culture? So I imagine you had to ask, what does my voice have to say? You know, that is specifically my voice that can be a value. How did you get over that hump yourself? 
Okay, so this sounds terrible, but I think Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this too in Big Magic, so I don't feel as bad. I actually did not think about providing any value whatsoever to the world. Is that right? I mean, I'm glad it does, obviously. I love that. I'm a caring, compassionate, empathic person, but I don't think creative stuff gets birthed when you're focused on what is it going to do. I wrote the book because I wanted to write a book and I wanted to write the book that I needed. So I wrote the book for my younger self. And that was the, and the fact that it's helpful to other people is awesome. And of course, I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to sell books and do the things. But I did not sit down with the intention of adding value to the world. I sat down. Can I say how groundbreaking that is? Because <laughs> so many people, so, you know, now we're in this slice of time, we're in a pandemic, or we're coming out of endemic, whatever, we're coming out of a pandemic, everybody's got COVID, who knows what's happening now, but everyone is kind of reevaluating their life, their great resignation is very real. I am a, I am a, a perfect example of that, where people are looking at their lives and saying, there has to be something more. <clears throat> and I think a lot of the reason why people feel stuck is because they don't have a clear path of, I want to be doing something more meaningful, but I don't know what it is. And I don't know how, you know, like I have countless friends that are in executive positions. They are work to the bone. They're smart as hell. They're amazing, sparkly people. So smart, have so much. And they're like, I just don't know. I don't know what else. I've been doing this for 25 years, for 30 years, for 20 years. This is what my identity is. How do I break out of that? Can you talk to this? Because that is like the crux of being stuck. It really is. And again, it sounds selfish when I say I'm not searching for meaning and value. I'm searching for what makes me happy. Um, because mm -hmm. fundamentally, if you are doing your authentic self, you know, if you are being who you actually are, you're not going to cause chaos in the world. All of the chaos and trauma and abuse and fuckery of the planet is not being caused by people who are in touch with their authentic selves. It's by people who are completely disconnected from who they are, what they think, what they want, and what happened to them. So for someone in an executive position who needs more meaning, I would say forget meaning for a second, forget value for a second. Let's just really dial this down. Down, what do you want to do? And most people mm. will say, I have no idea. And Martha Beck says this, and it's true. It's almost never true that people don't know. I mean, we need help and we need coaches and mentors and therapists to help us hear ourselves think if we're not practiced in it. But if you can quiet down the judgment and the shame and the shoulds and the oughts and the musts, you're going to hear what it is from yourself, from your inner self, that what it wants you to do. And it might not be quit your job. That's the other thing. It might be, mm -hmm. I really, really want, I have a client who I love who has not quit her job. This super unfulfilling job is fine. That wasn't the problem. The problem is she wanted her inner self wanted to paint. So she's taking painting lessons and that sort of scratched that itch. So again, sometimes you have to burn everything to the ground, but sometimes mm -hmm. it can be as simple as what is not in your life right now that genuinely is something you want. And what most busy executives will say is, I don't have time for that. Like, okay, well, great. How's that working for you? You don't have time. You don't have time not to. And if doing this thing costs mm. you your job, then that job needed to go. But what's all our, our turn? Like, what's the alternative? If we're not doing the scary stuff, the alternative is blah and meh and fine and stuck. So the change process is hard. It'll kick your ass, but it's worth it because the alternative 
is to be stuck. So we get into this, again, another spin when we think there's an easy way. Well, it's just easier for me to stay in this role in this identity. No, it's not. It takes so much energy to ignore who you are, what you think, and what you want. Mm -hmm. It takes just as much energy to change as it does to pretend like you're fine. So why don't you just, if you're going to expend the energy anyway, why not expend it in service of what you actually want? I'm getting chills all over my body about this because I think it's so powerful. And what I think is so powerful about you, Britt, is the passion and force in which you say you cannot afford to not do it. Because when I was answering that for myself, my my answer was, I want to dance. And I'm I'm in, I'm I'm knocking on the door of fifty. I became a you know a dance instructor. You know, I I discovered dance at forty five, and I just love it. And but my immediate thought was, you know, I've been in the you know the the corporate world for a long time from a financial like what am I going to do with dance? Am I going to go make whatever? So all of a sudden, it started to kind of plug it back down of just. You know, I, I I don't know. I think there is, I think because we're in a, in the time that we're in now where there is infinite possibilities, it isn't just climb the corporate ladder, get the good job, get the gold watch, retire at 55 and you're done. You have, you, you have YouTube stars that are eight that are millionaires, you know, and there's so many different options now of finding a place to be able to do that. And so that, yeah, please go ahead computer did thing. Well, I love what you said about what am I going to do with dance? Because yeah. that's the problem. Everything needs to be functional and financial and lucrative. Yes. Because you freaking like to dance. I took up circus a few years ago, Ariel. Yay! Oh, how fun. <laughs> I'm in my 40s. I have no business hanging upside down from a giant metal apparatus that's spinning. Yes, where- you do. Damn right I do because it's fun. I'm never going to be in Cirque du Soleil, but I don't care because doing that really, really satisfies these parts of me. And if we, a big myth we get into is that we're not creative. I don't care how numbers oriented, you know, focused on this you think you are. Everybody in some capacity is creative. And that doesn't mean you need to make art. But if we are not honoring the desires of those creative parts of us, we're going to just sort of fade into mehness. And life's too short for that. And I think it's great that we're generally not willing to do what we've always done. Now, all that said, if you're an executive with a salary and you have seven kids to feed and you have a sick parent, your choices are going to be limited. And that's okay. So let's take inventory of are the expectations you're setting for yourself, like, do those match the reality of your environment? And if they don't, I mean, I don't have children, so I could say I burned my life to the ground and took a shower and started over. I could do that because as a grown person, I could choose to sleep in my car. I could choose to, you know, decide to smoke cigarettes instead of eating food. I don't have little people who are dependent on me. So take inventory. Does your environment support what you're wanting to do? If so, okay, great, let's go. And if not, no problem. Let's find a better way of helping you feel better than expecting yourself to quit your job and start a new thing and da 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 da. Like some people can't do that, and not everyone has to do that. But we have to start with what's true. Otherwise, we're going to miss the mark. I love that. So the other thing that you, I think it's something that you got from therapy, not therapy, from addiction recovery, is the definition or the acronym FINE. FINE is you know, when somebody says, I'm fine, I'm working at this job, whatever. Fucked, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. 
(laughs) If you go to a 12 step meeting, fine is fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. And it's generally true whether or not you're an addict. Yes. Say they're fine. That's what they actually are saying. Yes. But I think acknowledging that again, back to the nerd word kind of stuff of just acknowledging that, you know, when, when you say, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. It is, it is like the continual lying to yourself. So even if it is the disconnection from your body that we talked about, there's also a disconnection from, you know, like the, the toxic positivity of everything is fine. And something I wanted to talk to you about is you talked about, you said the words over and over of in your book about people saying, I, I'm just so lazy or I'm crazy and call, you know, calling themselves those things. Can you talk about the lazy thing? Yes. And can you hear that noise? Yes. Coming in on the mic. Apparently someone next door to my office is drilling. So okay. To, it's okay. Them. It's all right. It's, it's not that bad. I don't hear it right now. Okay. <laughs> so the struggle is real. Okay. So the word lazy is so problematic. One, because it's a judgment and shamey. And two, it's inaccurate. So if someone says, like, I have a, a parent who's like, my kid is so lazy. All he does is lay around on the couch and smoke pot and play video games. I'm like, is he lazy or is he efficient because you're paying his rent, you're paying his cell phone. I wouldn't say he's lazy. I would say all of his needs are being met. Why would he get off the couch? Watch how fast lazy turns into not lazy when there's a cost. And so when people say they're lazy, one of two things is likely happening. One, they're being enabled. So the, you know, they're not uncomfortable. The change process sucks. And if you're not uncomfortable enough doing what you're doing, you're not going to enter in to the change process. So number one, you're too comfortable. And unless you have a little bit of discomfort, you're probably not going to change. Lazy. That's not lazy. That's efficiency. The other one is, you know, your brain is scared. Like, okay, Let's, why can't we just say, I'm scared of failure, I'm scared of rejection, or I'm scared of success? Eek, you know, like misery loves company, but success is lonely. If you start that business, if you do that thing, if you reach that goal, probably a lot of your friends are going to go away. And that is scary. And we're not allowed to talk about that. So if we can't talk about the fear driving the behavior, we're just going to call the behavior lazy. Like lazy is not a biological reality. It's a moral judgment. And it doesn't explain in any way what's actually happening. Like what's driving the inertia? Something is. It's not for no reason. I'm getting nothing out of this. That's not true. What did, what am I get, what did I get out of my drug addiction? Okay. One, I'm a hot mess. So if I just accept that I'm an addict, then I never have to worry about doing anything scary. I don't have to ever worry about people expecting anything from me. And Mm. my addiction allows me to not deal with the reality of my pain. So if we're trying to bypass pain and discomfort, we're going to be stuck. But that's not laziness. That's fear. Big difference. Can we talk about bypassing the pain? Because this is like riding on a big nerve of why do people stay stuck? Why is it so hard for change? Because it's painful. It's so painful to 
change our minds. First of all, our minds are organized for autopilot, repetition, pattern, and habit. So mm. to tell our brain, hey, guess what, brain? That programming that you got, we, that was wrong. Sorry, we have to uninstall that operating system and we have to reinstall new stuff. So physiologically, that's going to be very disruptive. So all change, even positive change, is going to initially create a fear response in the body. Now, that might be to different degrees, but we need to know that, yay, I want to make a good decision, does not produce a yay, good feeling. It usually produces an eek feeling. So knowing that our brains are organized for survival and not for productivity is a really good starting point. Mm. I think um, I think also, uh, I, I, I think, okay, so I want to go back for one second. So the reason and why I found you and this just stuck out so profoundly was something on Instagram that you posted. What if we viewed mental health symptoms as externally sourced injuries instead of internally sourced issues? It's really easy for us to look at our situation as us being lazy, us making bad decisions. We're just crazy. You know, your, your reason for being a drug addict there, you, there's less expectation on you, you know, so you can get away with it. I wonder about, you know, when you think of a, a patriarchal system that we have always lived in, you know, but also kind of sidestepping or acknowledging the victim mentality that people are trying to avoid. How do you explain that because I think it's powerful. I'll say it again. What if we viewed mental health systems as externally sourced injuries instead of internally sourced issues? Yeah. And so, and a lot of people get mad at me when I say that our symptoms are coming from externally. They're not inherently something is wrong with you. And it's like, well, what about mental illness? Like, yes, mental illness is real. I'm not saying mental illness is not real, but there are 40 million of us who are diagnosed with mental illnesses. Mental illness is really an outlier phenomenon. But even that, my early in my early career, I worked um, with foster care kids in psychiatric hospitals who were homicidal, suicidal, psychotic, all of it. If you look at their case file, it makes really good sense why they are experiencing what they are experiencing. Are they sick? Or is it that a system that is designed to not support what they what they need, that they're victims of a system? That doesn't mean that they're sick or ill or diseased. It just means that because of systemic issues, they're not getting the help they need. So symptoms. Now, none of this means don't take psych meds. Like I take antidepressants. Psych meds are great. But I wish we didn't call them medicine. When I put on glasses in the morning, I don't call my glasses medication. I call it a, you know, it's a tool. Taking psych meds is a tool to support your brain structure. But often anxiety, depression, all of these things that we are very quick to call illnesses are almost always injuries. And again, that doesn't minimize mm. the crushing, debilitating, very realistic and life-threatening pain of depression. I get it. I've had it my whole life. But knowing that the opposite of mental health is not mental illness, the opposite of mental health is unsafety is a brain that doesn't have what it needs in order to produce safety. You know, a brain that feels safe will not really produce crazy making symptoms. 
And again, it doesn't excuse anything and it doesn't invalidate people, but it does help explain what if you're not ill and there's no shame in having an illness, but what if you're not ill? What if this is an injury? You know, what if therapy is actually PT, physical therapy for the brain? You know, like if I bust my knee and I go to my PT, I'm not feeling shame about it. And I don't feel like this is who I am. And this is my disease. It's like my knee's busted and I need to do things to fix it. It's the same thing with our mental health. If you know that you need to have some structural or chemical support for your brain, it takes the stigma down. But I loved having a mental illness because it defined me. And then I didn't have to do anything. You know, I had a disorder. Nobody gets to expect anything from me because I have a disorder and I expected everyone to walk on eggshells around me. That's embarrassing to admit. And not everyone does that. But having an illness gives you a sense of community and it gives you a sense of identity. It's a lot harder to cultivate an identity than to just sort of like, I'm like, oh, this is my illness. I have a month and I have a community and I have my thing and this is who I am. It's like, no, that's what I struggled with. But it doesn't, our, our trauma and our symptoms don't define us in any way. Do you feel like the symptom, uh, do you feel like um, people are often misdiagnosed culturally? You know, you see that it's most people don't know that therapists are not required to be trained in the brain. And so most therapists are not trained in trauma. And if you go to a therapist, you can get diagnosed with bipolar or borderline personality or clinical depression or panic disorder without ever being asked, hey, what happened to you? Like, what happened to you? Mm. Something happened to you. Mm-hmm. How where it's not a requirement. And so, you know, if you're being diagnosed, but you're not being asked about trauma, there's a problem there. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting perspective to think about if you're walking around and sometimes the, like you said, there's a safety in the identity side of things. But I also think, you know, like, I, I think that we beat ourselves up for not feeling like we're handling the traumas, whether they are big T traumas or little T traumas or a thousand little paper cuts, you know, that, that have put us in this way, you know, where to me, it felt like freedom to learn that more than, you know, feeling like I was a piece of shit for feeling bad, you know, and beating myself up for feeling bad. Isn't that such a, like, another spiral, right? That I feel like shit and I'm going to beat myself up for feeling like shit, which is going to make me feel worse, which is going to be perpetuating the cycle. So, you know, the, it must be me. I suck can actually be a form of emotional cutting, emotional self. Oh yeah. So if the problem is me, that means nothing bad happened to me. I'm just, it's just me. Yeah. There's not equipped to handle it. Right. Exactly. There's a way in which self-blame gives us a false sense of control. It's a lot Mm. harder to say, okay, bad things. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm not a victim. I can handle this. This is mine to control. Exactly. So it gets complicated, but if you start, what's true, what's true is bad shit happened to you. Like, okay, welcome to being human. So let's honor that. Let's have perspective on it, but let's honor the reality of your pain and then we can get moving. So how do you, I know you have three steps to get unstuck, three main steps. How, how do you begin to start unwinding this? So I really, you know, I don't love the, here are five easy things to fix everything. Yeah. But when it comes to being stuck, stuck turns into not being stuck the second you start moving in any direction. So 
there are some quick steps that you can do. They're not going to solve everything. But if we're talking about the problem of stuck, you're not supposed to fix everything. The next step on your path is like, let's go from stuck to motion, and then we'll move on solving things. So step one, what is freaking true? Now that you know laziness isn't a thing, unmotivated isn't a thing, fight, flight, freeze, and your brain shutting down, that is a thing. What is true? No matter how good of a life you have, what is actually true about what's going on for you? You're not fine. One, do a truth inventory. I'm not fine, even though I think I should be. I'm not. I really don't like this relationship, even though I think I should. Step one, what's true? Step two, okay, knowing all of this, what are my choices? People are so quick to go to the why question. Why do I feel like this? And where is this coming from? And why is this a thing? Why is not helpful? You don't go up to a burning building and ask, why is the building on fire? You put the fire out. So don't worry about the why question. Step one, where's the pain? Where's the fire? Step two, what are your choices? Step three, of those choices, what are you going to say yes to today? Gotta say yes to something. It can be a microscopic step forward, but that is still a step forward. So if you're willing to make a list of choices and then do one of those choices, then we can get you into motion. But asking why is not helpful, not in the beginning. Huh. I love that thought of just, if you start anywhere, you are no longer stuck, even if it is small. And even if it's in the wrong direction, like your GPS will reroute if you go in the wrong oh. direction, but you have to get moving for your GPS to start giving you feedback. So let's say I took a dance class. Dance isn't my jam. Like, okay, cool. That's great. Now I know that. Now I'm going to try something else or whatever. Even if you're going in the wrong direction, if you're paying attention, you can reroute, but you're not going to be able to do anything if you are stuck. So do something, do anything in you don't have to get it right. Just go take a little step and we can reroute once you get going. I love that. What do you know, Britt, that you wish other people could know? Mm, I love that question. What do I know that I wish other people could know? That you're not crazy and you're not broken. All of our symptoms make mm. sense in context, even if we don't know our story, you know, even if you've blocked out your childhood, it doesn't matter. If you can just start with the assumption that if life is not working, it's not all your faults. And there are things that you can do and things that can explain this other than you're crazy. Uh, I grew up thinking I was crazy. Severe mental illness history in my family on both sides. And I wish I had known that there's no such thing as a crazy person. How do you view yourself now? I mean, you uh, refer to yourself in the past as the hot mess express. How do you review yourself now? How would I? Well, I'm not perfect. And it's not like I don't get triggered. And it's not like I don't struggle. And it's not like I'm never making messes to clean up. But I like to think I have more information. I have a lot more self compassion. I don't like mm. everything that I do. But there's no part of myself that I hate. Not anymore. Hmm. I love the self compassion. I think that's something that at least for me, is really hard to access. It's a practice. It's a daily intentional practice that I don't do very well. And I'm getting better because my mind is on it, you know? But it, uh, I think in general, self-compassion and compassion for others makes a huge difference. And what I also think makes a huge difference is your book, Science of Stuck. I hope that people will go and buy this book. What is your hope that people walk away with from, from your book? 
that your brain is organized to grow and to change. And the brain you have now is not the brain you're going to have a month, a week, a year from now. And Mm. you're not stuck. Like that's a biological impossibility. If you have safety, access and willingness, there are things that you can do to get yourself moving. So where you are is not where you're necessarily going to have to live forever. That is such a hopeful way to end this conversation. How do people find you, Britt? I'm on Instagram at Britt Frank, or um, the book is scienceofstuck.com, and you can buy the book wherever. And come say hi. I love meeting people who are on this journey, too, because it's so messy, and it's so much more fun to do it together. I wonder, you know, what has the feedback been like? What, you know, I'm sure you've probably had some interesting people reach out to you. It's so funny. The thing that I hear the most is that, Thank you for writing this book in a way that we can skip around, you know, because you don't have to read the book from start to finish. And I'm like, that's how I read. I never, I get so pissy when people are like, you have to read a book from start to finish. I like to skip around. So I generally, I've been hearing, I love that you could just open to any page and there's something there and you don't have to read chapter two to understand chapter nine. It's like, go what, go where your need, go where the need is and you can skip the stuff that's not relevant. So I love that. And it's the same with your Instagram is that it is, uh, I I personally find that just looking at it is so thought provoking. It's so challenging. It's galvanizing in a way that it'll stop you dead in your tracks and go, wow, I never, I never looked at it that way. Thank you for the perspective shift. And Britt, thank you so much for being a culture changer and for putting your work out into the world. It's important. Britt feels like my new best friend. (laughs) She's done such a great job breaking down the science behind being stuck And her book is like a smart breakdown from your closest smart friend. Again, it's called The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward. I've linked her info, including her book, in my show notes. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly personal journal, go to allisonhair.com and leave me your email. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.